Burt Bank was frozen. He stood there, unable to move. He refused to budge. An army ranger walked right up to him, tugged on his arm. Come on, we're here to save you. Run for the gate. He couldn't. He was frozen by disbelief. In his book, Ghost Soldiers, Hampton Sides tells the story of the dramatic mission during the Second World War on January 28th of 1945. 121 hand-selected army rangers slipped behind enemy lines in the Philippines in an attempt to rescue the 513 American and British prisoners of war who had spent three years there in utter abuse and starvation and cruelty and, and, and just the worst forms of torture you could imagine. Three years in this prison camp near the city of, of Kabah, Natuan. Sides describes the first effects as the camp began to be liberated. There was chaos. There was fear. The prisoners were too mentally brittle to understand what was taking place. Some of them scurried away from their liberators and hid. And one particular prisoner, Bert Bank, refused to budge even when the ranger tugged on his, on his, his, his arm and said, Come on, we're here to save you. Run for the gate. Bank still would not move. The ranger looked into his eyes and saw that they were completely vacant and registering nothing. What's wrong with you, he asked again. Don't you want to be free? And after a moment, a smile began to break out on the corner of Banks' lips as the meaning of the words began to sink in, the possibility that he had given up on the hope that he had already lost had come true. And he reached up to the outstretched hand of the ranger. Bank had seen such evil. He had suffered so deeply that he couldn't at first believe the blessing of liberation that was right before his eyes. It's an experience that Zechariah the father of John the Baptist, would be able to relate to. We're going to read a similar passage in Luke 7 where an impossible promise came and he couldn't see it. He couldn't believe it. This is Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 5 to 25 and then skip ahead to verse 57. This is God's Word. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And when the time for the burning of incense came and all the assembled worshipers were praying outside, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple. For he kept making signs to them, but, but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to the father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. And the neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. What do we see in this account? Well, to begin with, we see a terrifying encounter 
Um, what do we know about Zechariah and Elizabeth? Zechariah, we know he was a priest, it says. He wasn't the chief priest, but he was a priest. And we know that Elizabeth was also from a priestly family. She was a descendant, it says, of Aaron, the priest. Um, we know that they were older, beyond normal childbearing age, and we know that they were barren. And we know that Elizabeth experienced this as a disgrace from other people. Others, likely in that time and place, would have assumed that Elizabeth was barren because of some sin on her part or some sin of Zechariah's or perhaps uh, uh, some, some sin within the womb that they would know nothing about. But that was not the case, we know, because it says both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. And there are not many people the Bible says that much about positively. So here are really godly believers. And Zechariah, the priest, had been chosen by Lot to shoulder a very large responsibility, a responsibility that would have been the highlight of any priest's lifetime of service to God. We read once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go inside the temple and burn the incense. See, as a priest, a priest would have served um, 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 for, for two one-week periods each year. There were 24 divisions of priests, and each of them took you know, two week-long periods, and then for the big holidays, they all showed up. But his division would have been further broken up into various orders that each served one daily rotation during their week of temple duty. There were 18,000 priests in total. Twice a day, incense was offered. And against all the odds, 18,000 to one, this day, Zechariah has been chosen to be the priest to enter through the doors of the temple into the holy place and to walk right up to that temple that separated it from the most holy of place, the holy of holies, where, where God's ark of the testimony sat, where God himself would come enthroned between the cherubim, where no man could go and live inches from that on the other side of the curtain to offer the incense in the holy place during the evening offering after the evening sacrifice. Outside the temple, the people are gathering to pray. They would be praying continually. We read, when, when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. They did this every evening as, as, as people from all over Judea and Jerusalem would come and pray, pray, crying out to God, interceding on behalf of that one priest who has to go to the very, very, very border of God. And they would pray for the nation. One historical record says that the people prayed, may the merciful God enter the holy place and accept with favor the offering of his people. May the merciful God enter the holy place and accept with favor the offering of his people. May the merciful God enter the holy place and accept the favor, with favor, the offering of his people. And that's when Zechariah enters the holy place through the doors into the temple. And what happens? But right there, 
as he is offering incense, representing the prayers of God's people, as God's people are praying and crying that the Lord would come and visit him, as, as he too is praying and offering intercession for the people there before him, between him and the lampstand, he sees backlit an angelic creature, and he's utterly terrified. It's between him and the altar of incense. Or it's between him and the... And in, he's in front of the altar of incense. It's between him and the lampstand. And in this space that's filling up with this, the smell of the incense and the smoke, and the only light is that one candelabra that, that, that the angel is blocking. And, and when you think angel, please don't think fat baby with wings. Please don't think post-Baroque mannerist painting. Please don't think lady with flowy blonde curls and uh, a harp. We don't know a lot about angels in the Bible. Uh, the term angelos means messenger. They're messengers from God or messengers in rebellion against God, depending on the angelic creature. We don't have a lot of descriptions. We don't have a lot of details. We don't know very much. But we do know that whenever somebody saw one, they were terrified. So this is a really scary thing. Zechariah saw him and was startled and gripped with fear. This angel had come from God as God's personal representative, and Zechariah is terrified. It, it speaks of the, the holiness of God that even one of his angels coming from his presence would strike such fear. You think of when, when Moses encountered God in the burning bush, and, the, and God spoke and said, Moses, take off your sandals because the space where you stand is holy ground. You think of Mount Sinai when, when Moses went up to receive the commands of God, how, how they were told that if anybody, even an animal, touches the mountain, they would die. And there were peals of thunder and lightning and fire shrouded the space. You think of Isaiah 6, what we read, what we sang about earlier, and holy, 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 how there are these four angelic creatures in the holy of holies, in the presence of God in heaven, who, who, who have six wings each, and they cover their eyes because you cannot look upon God and live, and with another set, they cover their feet because it's a holy space, and they cry out night and day the same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All the earth is filled with His glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Again and again and again, it's the background noise of heaven because God is holy. Rep replicated three times for infinite emphasis that God is not common. God is not a creature. God is not the small God of your philosophy. He is the Lord, glorious in His holiness, fearful in His praises, working wonders. It's the mysterium tremendum, the terrible mystery of being both drawn and repulsed from one who is infinitely powerful and yet good. Think of Peter when he threw out his net for a catch of fish, and Jesus told him to pull his net in, and it had so many fish in it that it was going to sink the boat. And, and, and Peter, instead of saying, thank you, Jesus, instead says, Lord, get away from me. I'm an unclean man. When Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he said, Lord, 
I'm an unclean man, a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. When Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, he was sleeping, and the big gale came up, and the boat was flashing about, and they they were all going to die. And so they woke up Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care if we live? And Jesus said, peace be still. And not only did the wind stop, but the waves stopped. All that kinetic energy dissipated in a moment, and the, the water was like, glass before they were scared afterwards it says and they were terrified and asked what manner of man is this here with just a curtain between Zechariah and the holy of holies as the people outside are praying that the holy place where where Zechariah is that God would come and visit that space and hear our prayers right there you know between him and the lampstand, this powerful messenger of God, like nothing he's ever seen before, uh, is there, and he's terrified, and then the angel speaks a word of grace and blessing to Zechariah. The angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Which prayer? It's not likely that Zechariah would have been praying for a child in the temple that day. He was already too old, and, uh, and his wife was already too old, and he was on official duty. He was doing his job, the highlight of his career, the most important time. You were only allowed to go into the temple to offer incense once in your lifetime. This is his, you know, the climax of his career. And so he's probably not praying for a baby. Though it could be that God had heard the prayers decades earlier of some of you know what that's like, praying every day. And every hope ends up a loss. And every, you know, every turn ends up a dead end. And you feel that. Some of you know what that's like. So it's possible that he's referring back to those prayers. But it's also likely that he's referring to the prayers that he had just been offering and that the people outside had been offering, that God would redeem his people, that he would bring them from death to life, that the Lord himself would come to Jerusalem. And it may be all of that in that the lot may have fallen to Zechariah on this day precisely because it was God's purpose to bring about the redemption of Israel through a couple that was childless a couple symbolic of the barrenness of Israel under God's rule, the fruitlessness that Jesus would see as he walked about and looked at the religious leaders and looked into the hearts of the people. It's possible that God is saying, I am going to bring my salvation and it will be born through a couple that was childless. The angel says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will bring joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord your God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord himself. It's incredible. He's just heard 
that God has listened to him and is giving him and his wife a child in their old age, and this child would become the prophet who would prepare the way for the Lord God himself to come to Jerusalem. And yet, Zechariah's response is eye-opening because what we see is a doubting heart. Zechariah asks for proof. How can I be sure of this? Show me a sign. Prove it. It's understandable given all he had been through, but it's also an incredibly inappropriate question for, for the priest in that role, in that place, with a glorious angel just outside the presence of God, in representing the presence of God, gives you this kind of promise, and you demand proof? And so the angel responded, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. That's a good way to introduce yourself. Um, you know, and then he tells them that everything's still going to come true, but you want a sign, you've just gotten it. You're not going to speak until the baby comes. It's not that Zechariah was an unbeliever. He does say that, you know, you did not believe my words, you know, but, but the angel... Yeah, my angel said you didn't believe my words, but Zechariah had already been described as upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. So clearly Zechariah is a believer, but there was something that God told him at that point that he just could not buy. He couldn't believe it. He had suffered too much. He had been through a lifetime of walking with his wife in barrenness, and, and this promise was unbelievable. And, and, so, and so he didn't believe you wanted proof. And uh, you ask, how can somebody be a believer and yet flatly disbelieve something God says? Well, um, it's actually the experience of all of us in Christ at one point or another. The, the, the apostle says, Lord, I believe. Help now my unbelief. I mean, how often, particularly in places of greatest pain or loss or fear or shame, do we find it hard to believe what God says? Someone you care about dies. A spouse abandons you. You lose someone you love. And maybe you don't want somebody mentioning Romans 28, that God make, makes all things together for the good for those who love him. Maybe that's a promise that you're just not really ready to swallow. In what area of your life are you least able to trust God? In what area are you most likely to stay up at night worrying, filled with anxiety? What area of your life gives you uncontrollable emotions? What area of your life might you be willing to sin against God in order to get something you need, that you believe you need? Those are the areas. We all have them. Where's your area of undiagnosed unbelief? Zechariah discovered it in the temple of God. You see, what we suffer can make it very difficult for us to trust. Uh, in his book, Stories for the Journey, William White tells about a European seminary professor named Hans. He had a wife. They had fled Europe during World War II. 
uh, where he had found a job teaching at a seminary, and he was warm and gentle. He was loved by his students. He brought Scripture to life for them. And Hans and his wife Enid were in such in love. They would go for walks together, holding hands together. And in church, they would snuggle together in the, in the, in the pew. And this is in the 1940s when people didn't do that, you know? Like, uh, you know? And yet, when Enid, his wife, died, he went to a very dark place. He was overwhelmed with sorrow. He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't get up. He wouldn't take walks. The seminary president brought three other friends and visited with them regularly, but he remained lonely and depressed. He experienced the dark night of the soul. He told his friends, I am no longer able to pray to God. In fact, I am not certain I believe God exists. Loss can shake us all the way down. And after a moment of silence, the seminary president said simply, then we will believe for you. We will make your confession for you, and we will pray for you. And so the four men met daily for prayer, asking God to restore the gift of faith to their dear friend Hans. And it was many months later, as the four gathered with Hans, that Hans smiled at them, and he said, it's no longer necessary for you to pray for me. Now I would like you to pray with me because the darkness had triggered a season of doubt and it had blinded him to the goodness of God, but the dark night of his soul had passed away. It's like Burt Bank in that POW camp. He couldn't believe the good thing in front of him. He had suffered so much, it was impossible for him to believe at first. Even the strongest of believers experiences doubt. Sometimes we experience outright unbelief. Maybe not across the board unbelief, but unbelief in some area of our life where I am not willing to trust you, Jesus. Maybe it is your finances. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's somebody God is calling you to forgive. Maybe it's somebody God is calling you to confront. Maybe it's something that you don't want to deal with. It's in the back of your mind, and you know you have to deal with it, and you're going to have to trust God to be able to deal with it because you won't be able to do it on your own your own. Maybe it's something relational. Maybe it's something sexual. Maybe it's something in your marriage or with your children. Whatever it is, that area where you're unwilling to believe, where Jesus is saying, I want you to trust me. Your suffering has made it hard for you to trust me, but I want you to trust me with this. The reality is we are similius to set peccator in the, the words of Martin Luther. We are at the same time sinners and righteous before God. Righteous because Jesus has clothed us with his righteousness. <laughs> but it, we're still sinners at the same time. And so it's totally understandable. He's just like us in so many ways, Zechariah. And, uh, and yet it was in that area that he was going to experience what the Bible calls fatherly discipline. It's often that area, that, that sin that we're not ready to give up, that area we're not ready to trust in where God brings his fatherly care and discipline upon us. Zechariah was a priest serving the Lord inside the holy place within the temple when his disbelief was uncovered. And the fatherly discipline he received was that he would not be able to speak and probably not be able to hear based upon the way people communicate with him through hand gestures instead of words until the baby comes. He demanded proof, and he got what he asked for. 
Hebrews 12 says, My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes it, then you're illegitimate children and not true sons. In fact, the Christian who consistently gets away with it again and again and again is the very Christian I worry about the most because God's people don't get away with it. God won't let us. We may for a little while, but it's always going to come back and blow up because God loves us and will not let us go forever running away from Him. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the present time, but painful. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And that is exactly what happened to Zechariah. We see here God training Zechariah during those months of silence, those months in which you could communicate only by writing. God was treating Zechariah as a son. God was loving Zechariah because God loved his soul and would not let unbelief eat it away. We see a terrifying encounter. We see a doubting heart, but we also see here a God who saves We see God's faithfulness to restore Zechariah. Elizabeth had already recognized the grace. She said, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown me his favor. But Zechariah, he hadn't believed. And so the eighth day came to circumcise the child. And everybody's there, all the townspeople, all the relatives, and they're trying to figure out, you know, it's it's the bris. But you've got to give the baby the name then. And they say, okay, what are we going to name him? We're going to name him Zechariah Jr. And... And the voice speaks up, and it's the baby's mother. Like, don't I get a say in this? His name is John. Uh, And they're like, "Um, you don't have any Johns in your family. You know, you used a family name. Like, are you telling us that the real dad is named John? Is that what this is? You know, it, it was really inappropriate. And so, of course, they then try to do the veto and go to dad and 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 motion to him. And he asks for something to write on. He says. He writes out, his name is John. And immediately he's able to speak. And he starts praising God. He was doubting God, disbelieving God in the holy place. And then a little bit of discipline. And he's filled with joy and worship and praise of God, his Father. And we see God's faithfulness not only to Zechariah, but to all of us. Many of the people of Israel, the angel says, will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. God doesn't reject his people. He brings us to repentance to to a point where we're willing to trust him, to trust him even in those areas where we doubt him the most. John came to prepare for the Lord Jesus, we read, a people prepared for Christ. 
Christ who would come to usher in the kingdom of God, Christ who would pour out His Spirit upon His church, Christ who would carry the burden of my sin and your sin so that you bear it no more. It has been nailed to the cross of Christ, and it is no longer hanging over you. Jesus who would adopt us into the Father's family. The Father would make us siblings of Jesus, little sisters, little brothers of Jesus Christ our God. This is the grace that could take a believer like Zechariah, trusting in God but unable to believe so great a promise. Hurt, wounded, seems impossible. Take him and turn him into one who is bringing praise and honor and glory to God and rejoicing in the gift of God, the impossible having become possible by the power of God's grace a grace that would wake up God's people to the Lord, the coming Jesus, the coming Christ, who would come finally to save his people. In that blood-stained and diseased prisoner of war camp deep in the jungles of the Philippines, Burt Bank had begun to stir from his frozen disbelief. He had been hardened and emptied by so many years of suffering He began to believe this new reality that appeared before his eyes that salvation, salvation had come. The rangers searched all the barracks for additional prisoners, and then they shouted, The Americans are leaving! Is there anybody here? And hearing no answer, they left. But there was one more POW, Edwin Rose. Edwin had been on latrine duty and somehow missed all the shooting and the explosions, and when he wandered back to his barracks, he failed to notice that everything was empty, there was no one there, and his room was empty, and he lay down on a straw mat and he fell asleep. He had missed the liberation, but there was a reason why Edwin was deaf. The freed prisoners marched 25 miles and boarded their ship home. With each step, their stunned disbelief gave way to soaring optimism. Even little Edwin Rose finally made it aboard, and he finally woke up and realized that liberation had come. Let's pray.